Welcome to another episode of The Whistle Stop. I'm Drew Ammon. Our guest is Travis Stone, track announcer at Churchill Downs. Stone grew up going to Saratoga Racecourse in New York. Before arriving at Churchill Downs, he called races at Aqueduct Racetrack, Monmouth Park, and Louisiana Downs. We're joined by Greg Peterson and Stephen Jordan. Today's podcast is sponsored by ProtectingOurStudents.org. Visit their site to sponsor a student, classroom, school, or district with their COVID-19 Start Safe campaign for just $10 a student. Again, that website is ProtectingOurStudents.org. Travis, welcome to the show today. Good to be here. How's everybody doing? We're doing great. We're ready finally for the the 146th running of the Kentucky Derby. We've spoken to Larry already, Larry Colmas, on our last episode. Is it really a game of what they call bathtub memory for you right now with bib colors and horse names? Uh, yeah, it, not so much. Uh, I've been memorizing Soaks as much. I've been working on other aspects of the call, just trying to get a sense of uh, how it might shake out, things I may or may not say. When it comes to Silks, I wait a little bit later on because uh, – you know, there's so many owners with these horses nowadays. You just never know who's going to wear what this far out. But uh, I'm definitely doing prep and thinking about it. And with that, with everything going on with COVID, what is it like? Have you done any races without the excitement of feeding off the fans? And how is that? Yeah, our, our entire spring made at Churchill. There was no fans. But, you know, a lot of people watch online nowadays anyway and uh, tune in remotely. So it wasn't that different. Um so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, sort of a bummer that there'll be nobody there Derby Day, but at the same time, it's still the Derby, and it'll be fun. So, Travis, the 2014-year named the new track announcer there at Churchill Downs. Just to have that privilege, what's that like to have that and, and to know that it's such a coveted racetrack to talk about in general? It's awesome. Um, this is a great town, and the state as well lives and breathes thoroughbred racing, so it's cool to be a part of something that is such a big part of what this community is all about. Uh, from a race calling career perspective, it's one of the top jobs in, in the country. Obviously, calling the Derby is something everybody dreams of doing when they're when they're wanting to get into horse race announcing. And so, uh, it's very fortunate, very privileged, and good to be here for sure. Well, rewinding a little bit, Travis, um, when did you attend your first Kentucky Derby as a fan? I know I've seen some pictures, and I know you were uh, definitely younger uh, than than you are now, but. Um, I'm assuming it's a race you've always circled on your calendar every year. To be honest with you, I, I had never been to the Kentucky Derby until I got the job at Churchill. So my first Derby was one of the ones I was going to have to call American Pharaoh, actually. So um, just the way, I mean, I'm from upstate New York. So growing up there, it was kind of hard to get to the Derby. And then when I got my first job in race calling, I worked in Louisiana and we always ran Derby Day. So I had never been to the Derby until I went for the first time. Uh, to call it, which is uh, pretty wild. You grew up around the track in upstate New York, just uh, an hour from Saratoga. Share with us some early memories of being at the track and who you early influences are uh, in horse racing. Sure. My, yeah, we grew up um, just an hour north of Saratoga. My dad was a racing fan, and he was a New York State police officer before he retired, and he would save vacation days. And uh, we'd go to the track for a couple weeks in a row and then whenever he was off. And I'd go with him all the time and just sort of fell in love with the whole atmosphere and the experience of it. And sort of realized um, I was one of those kids that would come home and play whatever we had done that day. So if we had gone to a football game, I'd come home and play football. And I'd always come home and play horse racing. 
and I'd pretend to call the race as a kid growing up. And at some point it sort of transitioned from uh, playing as a kid to being a little more serious about it. And I started to study and analyze and idolize Tom Durkin, who's the, uh, the greatest caller of all time, who's the announcer in New York. And um, next thing you know, I'm writing him a letter when I'm like 12 years old. How do I be a race caller? He wrote me back and one thing led to another and here we are. So it was a lot of uh, thankful my dad made so many trips and uh, Tom Durkin was so gracious with his time. And next thing you know, we're calling races full time. So Travis, you graduated from the Missouri Auction School. How has that helped you with the position you're in now? And I see you called your first live race at age 18. I guess the question is twofold. I kind of want to get a feel for what your nerves were like before you called your first race. I was definitely nervous, but at the same time, uh, I, I remember they turned down to the backstretch and I just sort of had this mental thought or like, okay, this is fun. You can handle this. This is what you wanted to do type thing. So that was good. Um, and, you know, you always get nerves before big races. If you don't, you're, you're probably not in the right mental state anyway. Um, as for the auction school, I went there and I actually saw Smarty Jones lose the Belmont in 2004. I had done some website work in high school with a, uh, a local real estate firm. And he asked me if I wanted to go and uh, go to auction school and I could auction off real estate at their auctions. And I was like, well, you know, sure. I mean, I'll do that. It, Cause I knew that it would ideally in a, in a perfect world tie into racing in some capacity. And sure enough, it did. And my favorite story from there was, um, that was very nerve wracking. Speaking of nerves, you'd have to get up in front of these small subgroups of 10 to 12 students and bid call. And I could bid call a little bit at the time. Um, actually, I could bid call well enough, but it was still like now you're in front of peers and, and all that jazz. So it was, it was very nerve wracking. And this one instructor, I can't remember his name. He had a big belt buckle and a cowboy hat. I remember that much. He was from the world. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he said, he said, before you turn on the mic, before you do any sort of speaking, and he was, of course, uh, referencing auctioneering, say the phrase, bing, bong, bing, bong. And he goes, say it. He goes, bing, bong, bing, bong. And he goes, that last bong is where you want to start your voice on the microphone. Many people, when they're nervous, they'll start with a higher register, their muscles a little bit more tight in their throat. But if you go, bing, bong, bing, bong, naturally, you start sort of down here. And uh, to, to be honest with you, some of the best advice I've ever received in terms of public speaking. And it's uh, it's been clutch. I mean, even before the first derby, I remember going bing, bong, bing, bong. And, and pretty much before every big race, I'll do it um, just to make sure that I, you know, sort of reset and, and drop the register down low and, and be ready to call. And to that end, I was in Arkansas when American Pharaoh won the Arkansas Derby. I knew he was a special horse. I didn't know he was going to be this special. So as far as that goes, the adrenaline rush when you had an opportunity to call the Kentucky Derby when he won that. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. It was sort of like I put pressure on myself all the time to do well. And so being in my first derby, you know, sort of an element of you want to prove that they made the right hire. It wasn't until after the race where, like, it all was sort of a come down moment for me. I was just so amped up and and ready to go all week and, and worked really hard on just staying cool, calm, and collected with everything. And luckily it panned off because the, the call went well. But I do remember getting uh, very emotional afterward, and I was exhausted for about three or four days after that as I tried to recover mentally and physically. It was just a very taxing week. But uh, it was awesome. I mean, he was such a good horse and um, a deserving derby winner and, and a triple crown winner at that. And pretty cool to say it was the first one that I was involved with. So all of us have been to the derby. 
Uh, you know, I'm a Kentucky kid, born and raised in Lexington, lived in Tennessee and Indiana for a little bit of my life. But horse racing has been around since I've been five years old. My dad used to take us to the racetrack at Kingland. Uh, so we've all been to the Derby. Describe what it's like from the perch, seeing everything paused uh, for those two to two and a half minutes. It's just this gigantic sea of humanity. It's it's almost hard to fathom, especially when you work there the rest of the year and there's a fraction of the people there. And so you're used to seeing, you know, landmarks and, and, and aspects of the plant that are completely open and all of a sudden they're just surrounded by people. It's just a, it's a pretty wild experience. But it's also cool because uh, you can see a little bit of everything. You can see the uh, sophisticated folks upstairs. You can see the college folks out in the field and the families to the right and so it's got a little bit of everything it's uh it's quite the scene but it is just a gigantic swarm of people I and mean, you look out and there's just nothing but people it's pretty wild yeah travis i worked in hospitality one of the hospitality tents i believe for nbc sports back in wow 2003 2004 and i was just amazed that everybody you know they said here you know we were caterers and they said here have a mint julep like yeah. everybody pauses, all the cooks come out from the kitchen, everybody pauses and it literally just freezes in time to your point. But uh outside of Churchill Downs, do you have other tracks where you enjoy watching and calling a race or do you have an old memory that sticks out? All race tracks are kinda of cool in their own unique way. It's a lot like ball fields in, in baseball. Each have their own little bit of charm. Uh some are, you know, more distinct than others. Um, some are more plain and sort of basic than others. From a calling perspective, the best track to call at Aqueduct in the city, um, New York City, because there's uh, no obstructions whatsoever. Um, other tracks that are fun to go through, the view at Santa Anita is the nicest in, in, in racing and the mountains in the background. And then Saratoga is just uh, for what it is. So, yeah, I mean, there's uh, I like each of them. Monmouth, Monmouth's another spot that's way cool. Uh, it's they're sort of like uh, sort of like ballparks. Each are each are unique, and they're all a lot of fun. So we all know why people go to the racetrack, not only to look at these nice, beautiful horses, but we like to gamble. Do you yourself participate in any gambling, or find yourself betting on horses while you're at the track? I don't bet on races that I call. Um, the only time I'll gamble is in a recreational capacity if I uh, I'm going to the track with some friends or with some family. Or, you know, uh, I'll play the Preakness or the Belmont from Churchill. I don't play races that I call, though. Um, it's uh, I just don't think it's the right thing to do. And at the same time, it's uh, you can't really give an unbiased call when you have money on the line. Anybody that says you, you do your can and they're lying. So, um, yeah, no, I don't uh, I don't gamble on the races that I call. But I do enjoy it, and I think it's good as a, as a race caller to gamble a little bit because you have to handicap, and that yield better calls just sort of you get a better understanding of how races shake out and such so yeah i'm a fan of the, the gambling aspect stay tuned for the second part of our interview brought to you by protectingourstudents.org travis the uniqueness of churchill downs and the kentucky derby particularly with that race being a field of 20 horses typically what does that element provide for you as an announcer, knowing that they could be so bunched up. It's by far the most uh, difficult race to call, period. Um, there's just so much going on, and it all happens in two minutes. And It's kind of crazy to think about, but the number of words spoken in a derby call is roughly between 
four hundred and fifty to five hundred words, give or take. And so you don't say much, but it feels like you say a ton. And you just have to you have to really think and and focus. And I'll give you a couple examples. And Tom Durkin once said to me, he goes, "You're gonna he goes, you want to say every horse's name once, which is the case with any race call." He said, but there's so many in there, you're going to start to freak out a little bit when you get to the 13th and 14th horse that it's taking too long. You've already screwed it up. There's no way you can finish this. And he said, just keep going. And he said, then you get to the 15th and 16th horse and the same thing. You're going to start to say, oh, my gosh, this is taking too long. And he said, keep going. You'll get to the 18th, the 19th, the 20th horse, and you're really going to feel the pressure. Like, I, there's no way I can do this. I'm, I'm almost – the race has got to be almost over, and I'm still naming horses. And he said, just keep going. Have faith. When you get to that last horse, you'll look up, and there'll be five furlongs to go. You get the half-mile time, and you just call the race from there. And I can't – I cannot stress how critical and crucial that advice was because, sure enough, on the first turn of my first derby, and every derby since – there's a feeling of, oh, my gosh, this is taking too long. And, you know, you're just used to mentally getting through eight, nine, ten horse fields. Now you have twice as many. It just makes makes it very difficult. But, uh, you know, and then it's just, you know, you have to have everything in mind and things prepared. And you just have to be ready for things, you know. And, and the more you prepare, the, the less likely things are to catch you off guard. And, and even still, you just have to be sharp and ready and, and uh, it's it's just so hard to call, but it's also a lot of fun. When it's over, it's it's such a relief. And, you know, now you're just like, okay, now 364 days until we have to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> just thinking about it, Travis, and you took the question right out of my mouth as far as, you know, I, I try to ask as, as many horse people as, as we have on if they try to get through the entire field. You know, at least say every horse name at least once, just so if somebody's got a bet and they're listening, they know, you know where where they are at least, you know through that uh, uh, through that half mile post. But as far as your day of race routine, is that different for the Derby? This will be your sixth Derby, so you've got to have a routine down to pretty much a science right now. Or is that a little bit fluid? Does it change? Do you listen to the uh, my old Kentucky home, what things do you partake in and not partake in? I do not listen to my old Kentucky home on purpose. Um, I do have a routine down, and every year I have a Google Doc that I update after every derby with, like, notes and thoughts and perspectives and things to remember. Um, I do I do keep a pretty uh, steadfast routine. No coffee on derby day, uh, for example. Um, <laughs> but uh, And it's more about derby week. It's just about trying to get right into the, into the zone right off the bat. Um, but Derby Day, to be honest with you, it's a lot about just trying to stay calm and not getting caught up into the moment and just being chill throughout the day and trying to get as much of a sense of normalcy as possible and and letting it shake out from there. Next thing you know, you're you're rolling to one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, and time keeps ticking away and the and the race approaches quickly. So uh, it's just about trying to stay calm and keep the nerves in check and and not get too wigged out about things. So you're also mentally not fatigued when they come on the track for the big race. Um, so yeah, just, you know, just, but, but I always bring food to the booth. So I don't have to travel around much. I, this year it's a little bit different, obviously, but typically it's so crowded, you know, you can't really go get lunch. So I always bring lunch, just little things that could cause stress or anxiety. You you want to get rid of them and not have them be an option. Travis, can you give us an idea from a number standpoint, how many hours you spend studying your craft that is after a race, really breaking down how you called the race, versus the research you do on horses, trainers, owners. I have a binder of, of notes, words, phrases, sayings, articles, 
thoughts, perspectives. I read, I have a, uh, in fact, it's sitting right in front of me. I got a pile of, I don't know, there's probably eight or nine books there on everything from writing stories to drama to voice addiction, the creative habit, the, you know, how to stay creative in what you do. And I'm constantly studying. I, I did a lot of transposing of famous race calls from, you know, Secretariat's race calls to McDurkin's calls, et cetera, et cetera. And tried to break them down and truly distill like what makes a good call? What is it that resonates with people? Um, what are some words and phrases or sayings or, you know, constructs that you can utilize to make the call better? And so it's just funny you say that because sitting on the couch behind me is a thesaurus. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to hone and, and perfect and, and get better at it and just think of new ways to call races and new words to use. Well, for our listeners out there, if you haven't watched Travis's 2015 Kentucky Derby call on YouTube. It is worth the watch. And Travis, you were talking about the emotions that led up to your first Derby call. Your punch of the air at the end, you can just tell that you're just so elated that the Derby is not necessarily over, but you could tell there was some pressure on you that you just felt elated after that. Oh, man. I wish I, I, wish I could put it into words. It was such a... As I said before, it was my first derby, so that was all new. Um, you know, I'd never called a race with that many horses. That was new. So it was just a bunch of everything. And then, you know, the pressure of wanting to do a good job as uh, as the new guy and, and proving that they made a good hire. It was So it was all there. And then um, I'd worked on a lot of things for that call, but I also purposely sort of scaled back some of the preparation, not get too bogged down with the mental aspect of that and, and, and just work on doing a good call throughout the race i just i wish i could describe it like i was just in the zone everything came to me at the right time i had everything i had in mind just just happened to be there i had phrases like um frosted is starting to warm up or long-legged dortmund or american pharaoh and and firing line firing line firing two something like that dortmund long-legged dortmund dortmund digging down like all these little phrases i had in mind and then of course at the very end I said, if American Pharaoh is going to win this, I'm going to say American Pharaoh rules the Derby. It all clicked. And for, you know, I'm just very lucky that it did. But uh, I was also lucky in that uh, the race wasn't that crazy. You know, they sort of, it went one, two, three, the whole way around the racetrack, thankfully. And so I just remember they turned for home and they were right across the track. And, you know, your, your mind is uh, saying all sorts of subconscious things to you. And, and I remember saying to myself, you're almost there uh, just two furlongs to go. And, and you know these three horses that are in front, so just call the race. And I have a very vivid mental image of the three horses turning for home and uh, saying to myself, you got this. And so when it was over, it was like, oh, wow. It was, it was just way cool. Way cool. I've, if I've, I've told people in the past that if, if I could truly you know, bottle up and sell what that rush is like, I mean, I'd, I'd never have to work another day in my life. It was, it was awesome. Well, speaking of work, <clears throat> Uh, I've been working there at Churchill Downs here in Louisville. Talk about what it's like without John Asher there. Myself, I'm a Western Kentucky alumni. I graduated in 2008. He gave the spring commencement speech. Anytime I ever saw the man in town, he had no idea who I was. But he always, I could always walk up to him, tell him, hey, I graduated Western 2008. And he talked to me for five minutes. If I had 20 minutes, he talked to me for 20 minutes. So kind of just... Give everybody an insight about John Asher. I mean, that that summarizes John to a T. You could be in the room with him, and he'd make you feel like you were the most important person in the room, no matter who you were. Um, he just had an, an unbelievable 
mind in terms of horse racing and 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 iconic moments and, and unique stories. And on top of that, he was just a good person. He once he came up to the booth one day after one of the derbies. I can't remember which one. It might have been the first one. And he paid me one of the the biggest compliments I've ever been given in my entire career. And uh, and he was just one of those types of people. And uh, that was it's terribly sad that he's no longer here. And it's there's a big picture from hanging in the press office. And so every day you walk into the track and I go get my program for the day and say hi to everybody. There's always that picture there. And just to sort of a reminder what type of person he was and the influence that he had over the Derby and this town. I mean, it'll be a long time before someone is paraded around Churchill Downs at the time of their death like he was. That's a pretty prestigious honor. Well, Travis, just to close here, let's come full circle here as we talk about the upcoming Kentucky Derby. And this time around, it'll be the second jewel, which is just so bizarre to say. But to that end, when you think about the first jewel, which was the Belmont this year, what was going through your mind when you watched that without fans? Because for me, I sat down, I watched it from home, and I'm thinking, this is so weird watching this with no fans. But when it was over, I just turned and said to a couple of friends, I needed that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, it, it was definitely what I was – I was disappointed that they ran it at a mile and eighth, uh, but I understand it. To me, one of the, the coolest things is the Belmont's mile and a half aspect of it. But when Tis the Law did what he did, I – I accepted that he ran so well. He was so talented. And I said, you know what, this is, this is going to be all right. Right. Because I mean, that was at a time when, I mean, it feels like forever ago, but it also feels like yesterday. I mean, there were weeks of our year this year that just felt absolutely miserable and like we were never going to get out of it. And then here comes a good horse and a good horse race. And it sort of reminds you that, you know, this is all temporary and, and he's just, he's, he's been awesome since then. And so I don't care that it was not an amount and a half because he's proven that he's by far the best horse in the crop and, and uh, he's going to be an overwhelming favorite in the Derby and, and deservedly so, but uh, no, I hear what you're saying there. I mean, it was truly one of those, yeah, needed that moment. And I was glad to see him run so well because he's obviously a very good horse too. Well, Travis, we certainly appreciate your time and look forward to listening in the background and on the, on the national broadcast and then, watching your YouTube video of, of the, the calling of the 146th Kentucky Derby, and we'll have to make this an annual thing. You got it. I enjoyed it, and uh, good luck with all the wagers. <laughs> Appreciate that, Travis. You, got, <laughs> you, you think Tiz Lalal is the one? He's going to be very tough to beat. I think the only one that can probably beat him is Honor AP. Um, but, yeah, he's by far the one to beat. What about on Friday for the Oaks? That's a great race. I actually I don't know there. Uh Gamine's the most talented. I'm not sure she's going to thrive going nine furlongs. And Swiss Skydiver's good, and the uh, speech is also not bad either. So that that's then that's a horse race. That's going to be a good one. Hey, thanks, Travis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Appreciate it very much. You got thanks, it, guys. We'll see you. Find us wherever you get your podcast, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WhistleStopPod. Thanks again to our sponsor, ProtectingOurStudents.org, and don't forget to check out their website to learn more about their COVID-19. Start Safe campaign for as little as $10 a student. Again, that website, protectingourstudents.org.